Good morning, everybody. Good to see you here this morning. Great to see visitors. Um, it's great to have you with us. And just to reiterate, if you're a visitor, if it's your first time, then a special welcome to you this morning. Great to have you here today. You should have um, on your bulletin, on the back of the bulletin, there's uh, an outline uh, of the message today. So if you want to use that, if that's helpful, that's there for you to uh, follow along. And all the verses will be up on the screen as well for us. Now, over the last few weeks, I've been watching in horror at the scenes from the Caribbean, where numerous islands have just been completely and utterly just destroyed, haven't they? Everything just blown down, everything just kind of flattened. And people have pretty much lost everything. There are some folks who've lost absolutely everything and just have the clothes that they're standing up in. And it really made me think, how would I respond if that happened to me? What would I do if I got home at night and found my house and everything I had gone? How would I respond to that? What would I do? What if I came home one night and my house was just a pile of rubble, like a gas explosion? We're unlikely to have a hurricane like they have in the Caribbean, but this is a possibility. Um, About seven or eight years ago, we came home one night to discover that we had a gas leak and we were told to get out and the the whole court we were living in was just minutes away from the whole place being evacuated. The whole thing could have gone up. So this is a possibility. We could go home and find something like this happen. Everything gone. What if all my possessions... What if, even worse, all my family were, were just gone like that? That's, that's possible. Could happen. And it made me think about the things that I value, the things that I really value, the things that are really precious to me. And I wonder today, what is the, most, the thing that you most value in your life? What are the, the most precious things in your life? What's the one thing that you treasure above all other things? Might be some things that you'd be prepared to give up. But what is the one thing that you wouldn't want to give up, that you wouldn't choose to give up, that you wouldn't be prepared to give up? Abraham was a man in the Bible who was asked to give up the most precious thing to him. He was asked to give up his unique son, the the son that he loved. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of Abraham in the Bible, and we've seen how Abraham was called by God to, to leave his home and his roots and to travel to a new land, to be a nomad. And whilst at the same time as he was doing that, God gave him some really significant promises. And those promises centered on having a son. And that those promises centered on not only having a son, but that a whole nation would descend from that son. And ultimately that somebody even more unique than the son would come from that son. Some great descendant, hundreds and even a thousand or so years later, the Lord Jesus Christ. God was going to bless the whole world through this son that was promised to Abraham. And after many years of waiting, God finally and miraculously gave Abraham this son, this unique son, the son that he loved. He was in his very, very old age, and his wife was past bearing children, so this was was a miraculous event. And God finally gave him this miracle, the son that he loved, the son that he'd promised. And this was the beginning of the fulfillment of these phenomenal promises that that God had given to, to Abraham. Then one day, when when this son, the son that, that, that Abraham loved, this unique son, in whom all these promises were centered, God told Abraham to kill his son as a sacrifice. Isaac was probably, I guess, around about 8 to 12 years. You can kind of read between the lines. He was probably something around that age. And God told Abraham to take 
this son, this son through whom all, in, in all these sacrifices were centered, all these promises, not all the sacrifices, sorry, all these promises were centered and would find their fulfillment in. And, and God told him to take this son and to kill him and then to burn his body as a burnt offering, as an act of worship, as a sacrifice. What on earth is that about? It's crazy, isn't it? What on earth was God asking him to do? God miraculously gave him a son, promises in this great nation, and this great nation is going to descend from this son, but then he wants to take the son away. He wants Abraham to sacrifice, to kill this son, and to burn him on an altar of stones. That is a pretty bizarre situation. And perhaps for many of us who've grown up in church, and we've kind of grown up on these stories, reading them from little ones, we don't really think through sometimes the, the enormity of what was actually being asked here. And just the barbarity, in one sense, to kill your son, to, to, to burn him. That's just kind of a bizarre thing. It's a pretty bizarre situation. So we're going to read the account from Genesis 22, 1 to 19. And we'll see if we can make some sense of what is going on in this passage and what God is doing in Abraham and through Abraham in this situation. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Genesis 20, uh, 22, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, chapter 22. And we're going to read from verses 1 through to 19. And if you haven't got a Bible, you just want to listen as I read it, that's fine. So Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of, this, of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants 
and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. God had repeatedly promised to Abraham that he would have a son, and then from that son, this great nation would come, and through that nation, the whole of the rest of the world would be blessed, and of course, that fulfillment was found in Jesus, because it was through the Lord Jesus that blessing has come to the whole world for those who put their faith and their trust in him. So, to Ab- so God had promised Abraham this great blessing. He had promised him this son, this, this great nation. And then mirac- God had miraculously given Abraham this son. He'd given him the very thing that he'd promised. But then we read these words in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Abraham had received all these promises from God, which were centered on the existence of Isaac. And then God asked him to sacrifice him. And that must have cost or, or caused Abraham two massive intellectual, theological, and emotional issues. Firstly, why would God tell him to sacrifice Isaac when he'd miraculously given Isaac to him after all those years of waiting, and when he'd made all these promises about Isaac and all his descendants and this great nation that was going to come and so on? And and then secondly, why would God tell Abraham to kill Isaac at all? I mean, God hates death. God forbids murder. Child sacrifice was something that God obviously forbade in the Old Testament. It's described over and over again as being something that's detestable to God. And yet here was God asking Abraham to sacrifice his child. So to to say that Abraham would have struggled with this, I think, is a massive understatement. And yet Abraham does exactly what God asked him to do. Verse 1 tells him that actually this request of God was a test. So As the readers, we see behind the picture, we see that there's something bigger going on here. And we're given a clue into what will eventually happen. But at that time, Abraham is just faced with this command. The test was simple. Would Abraham trust God and do what God asked him to do, even if it made no sense? Would Would Abraham do what God asked him to do, even if it made no sense to him? And made no sense, I'm sure, to those around him. And would he be willing to lay down the very thing that was most precious to him and in return give that to God? Well, Abraham was obedient. And the passage we read describes the preparations that he made. It was a three-day journey and he, and he cut wood and he packed a donkey and he got two servants and so on. So Abraham had repeated opportunities to think through what was going on and to realize what was happening. But he chose still to go through with it. This was a three-day journey. Plenty of time to think and reflect and change his mind. But he didn't. And he set off with, with Isaac with two servants and this donkey carrying the firewood for the sacrifice. And he traveled from Beersheba, which was right down in the south uh, of what is modern-day Israel, to a place called Moriah. There's a map there for you. It's a three-day journey by foot. And he travels all the way up uh, to, to, uh, to Moriah. And Moriah was a hill, or it was a region, but specifically with this hill. And later on in the Bible, we discover that actually Moriah was where Jerusalem was built. And specifically, Mount Moriah, or this hillside in this area, was where the temple in Jerusalem was built. So this was where Abraham was being called to go and offer Isaac, was where uh, several hundred years later, several hundred years down the road, 
God would uh, command the Israelites to build their great city, Jerusalem, and specifically where the temple would be built, where the whole of the Jewish nation would come and worship. But at this point, it's just a bare hillside. It's a hillside in the countryside. And having reached the bottom of this hill, Abraham says something really significant. Look at verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. This incidentally is the first time the word worship is used in the Bible. Abraham says we will worship and then we will come back to you. So despite intending to go up the hill and sacrifice Isaac, Abraham quite clearly says that he and Isaac, the two of them, he says we will come back to you. And I don't think he was just saying this to fool the servants and to kind of con them into thinking that all was well and, and, and there were no problems. I think this is specifically recorded for a reason. This is really detailed. And it's because Abraham, I believe, genuinely believed that both he and Isaac would come back. Either God was going to intervene and provide an animal to offer as a sacrifice, or God was going to raise Isaac back from the dead if Abraham had to go through with this sacrifice and kill his son. And so as he and Isaac set off on their own up this hillside, Isaac says this, he says, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And Isaac was clearly in the dark at this point. He didn't understand what was about to happen to him. And we might think that Abraham is just sort of, again, brushing him off with this answer and trying to keep things uh, calm, hoping that Isaac wouldn't realize what was actually going on. But again, I don't think this is the case. Abraham really believed that God had a solution, and Abraham was prepared to trust him. And when they reached the top of the hill, they built an altar of stones there, and then they arranged the wood for the fire. And then we read that Abraham bound Isaac and put him on the altar. Now, the passage doesn't tell us, but at some point in between these two verses, Abraham must have explained to Isaac what was about to happen. Isaac would have been more than capable of, of running away. He was strong enough to carry the wood, it says, so he must have been able to escape his father. Abraham was a very, very old man at this stage. And, and Isaac would have been more than capable of running away or, or, or escaping from his grasp. But like his father, we, we don't, we're not told the details, but like his father, Isaac trusted God. must have been a phenomenal situation, an amazing scene to kind of be there. And so just as Abraham was about to plunge the knife and the kind of tension builds up in the narrative that, that Isaac is bound up there and Abraham is stood there with this knife and he's literally about to plunge the knife into his son. And as he does so, as he's just about to do so, an angel of God stops him and prevents him from doing just this. And there behind him is a male lamb, a ram, caught in the bushes by its horns, ready to be used as a substitute for Isaac. And as always with the Old Testament, if we really want to understand what's going on there, we need to see what the New Testament has to say about this. And in Hebrews eleven seventeen to 18, we read these words, that by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises, that's all the promises about his son, about this great nation, about the blessing of the world, when he'd received the promises, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's through Isaac that all these blessings are going to come. So Abraham was prepared to go through with this, and effectively he did, because effectively he, he did kill Isaac. He, he went all the way, and it was only because God stopped him. So Isaac... Had, 
Abraham rather had gone all the way through with this. In one sense, he had fully sacrificed him. He'd shown that he was prepared to do it. But it was Abraham's faith in God that enabled him to do so. God tested him and Abraham demonstrated that, his, that he had faith in God and in what God had previously said. God had been absolutely clear that it was through Isaac that the nation was going to come and that blessing was going to come to the whole world. And so Abraham was prepared to trust God and take him at his word, even though it made no sense to him. Difficult to really get on or get a grip into what's going on in Abraham's mind. There must have been great tension and great doubts. John Ortberg's written a great book called Faith and Doubt. And his argument is that the most important thing in that phrase, faith and doubt, is the and. Because real faith isn't faith without doubts. Otherwise, it's just rock-solid certainties. There needs to always be an element of doubt for us to then really put faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and in God. And Abraham, though he had all these promises, though he believed God, at the same time, no doubt, there were great doubts, and he was wrestling with this. But he's obedient, and he followed through, even though it didn't make any sense to him. And Hebrews eleven nineteen gives us a bit more detail. It says this, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Abraham's faith in God was so strong, so complete, that he believed God would either produce a substitute for Isaac so that he wouldn't have to kill him, which is, of course, what ended up happening, or that if he had to go through with actually killing Isaac, and he demonstrated that he was prepared to do that, then God would raise Isaac back from the dead. That was what Abraham believed, that either God would provide a substitute, or that God would raise Isaac back from the dead. And because Abraham went all the way through with God's command to the point where the knife was about to go into his son, it was as if he did receive Isaac back from the dead. The book of James in the New Testament also offers us Further information on the situation, James says this, Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Abraham had declared his faith in God. That was a kind of public thing. He professed faith in God. But God tested him to see, was this faith genuine? Because the Bible makes it clear that faith, that genuine faith in God, will result in actions. And because Abraham obeyed God, he was demonstrating that his faith was real. His faith was made complete. He professed faith. It was made complete by what he did. The actions, the works proved that the profession of faith was real, was genuine. He declared his faith in God and his promises, but his actions proved that his faith was was authentic. This was genuine faith. And this reveals a principle that runs right the way throughout the Bible. God will often test our faith. That's the principle that runs right throughout the Bible. God will often test our faith. He will put us through situations that give us the opportunity to demonstrate that what we say we actually mean. God will give us opportunities to demonstrate to him and to others and to ourselves that what we profess, what we say with our mouths, we actually really mean. Peter writes these words in the New Testament. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So God allows us sometimes to go through difficult situations. And God sometimes asks us to do things that are hard or that don't make sense to us, and perhaps particularly don't make sense to other people around us. 
And the reason that he does this is to enable us to prove that the faith that we profess is actually genuine. And isn't just words. Because words are easy to say, isn't it? You know, aren't they? It's easy for us to say, I, I'll do this. It's easy for us to sing a song, you know, all to Jesus I surrender, or, or, or an equivalent like that. Words are not difficult to say. The hard thing is to actually prove those words in our actions. That is a much harder thing. And this is what's going on here in Abraham's life, or partly. Verse 1 of, of, of Genesis 22 says, God tested Abraham. We might say that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We might say that. I've trusted in Jesus. But it's only when we have to do really difficult things, when situations are hard and, and testing and trying in our lives, that the faith we profess to have in God is proved genuine. Or it may be that actually if we fail to be obedient to God in those moments of testing and, and trying situations, that our faith is actually found to be false and, and not what we've professed. And that, and that sometimes sadly happens. So God tests those who follow him. Write this down. God tests those who follow him because our faith is tested to reveal it's genuine. This is a really important biblical principle. Our faith is tested to reveal it's genuine. And if you have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your faith will be tested to see if it's genuine. There will be situations that you will face, circumstances that will occur in your life where you will be tested, where I will be tested to say, yeah, you've said this, but is it real? Now, God knows if it's real, but he allows us in time, in reality, in this world, to actually demonstrate whether or not what we've said with our mouths is really true. And it reveals the genuineness, the authenticness of our faith. And sometimes God allows us to go through difficult situations that we don't understand or that we don't want to go through. It can be all sorts of difficult situations that we would never choose to do, never choose to go through. And sometimes he might ask us to do things that don't make sense to us. Sometimes he might ask us to do things that don't make sense to other people. And what he's doing in those situations is giving us an opportunity to trust him and an opportunity to demonstrate our faith by our actions. God is testing our faith. Sometimes he puts us in situations where we have to make a choice. Will I do the right thing or the wrong thing? Will I, will I obey him? Will I be obedient? And that test reveals, well, is my faith really genuine? Or am I just saying things? Sometimes God might ask us to sacrifice, not in the way that he did to, uh, to Abraham, but he might ask us to sacrifice the one thing that is most precious to us. He might ask you, he might ask me to be willing to let go of the thing that we really treasure the most. It might be a person, it might be a thing. Despite Abraham's faith in God, he must have had all sorts of questions and doubts and things going on in his head. Even though he believed that, that God could raise Isaac back to life, he still wouldn't have wanted to kill him. Even, even if, in, in Abraham's mind, it was a very cold and rational thing. I don't think it was. But even still, he still wouldn't have wanted to kill his son, would he? Nobody wants to do that. Even if you know immediately God's going to raise him back to life. Even in that situation, he still wouldn't have wanted to do that. And God sometimes allows us to go through difficult and testing situations to see just how much we really love him. You say you love me, but do you really love me as you go into this situation? And whether we're prepared to put him first, even when it might cost us really dearly. It might be that God is asking you today 
to let go of the one thing that means most to you, the one thing that matters most to you, the one thing that is dearest to you. We sing that song, don't we, which is based on Philippians 3. All I once held dear, all I count, I, I've counted loss for the sake of knowing Jesus, knowing you, Jesus. All, all I once held dear. It's easy to sing those words, isn't it? Nothing compares to knowing you, Jesus. Easy to sing those words, but in, when it comes to real life situations, it's much harder to do that. And it might be today that God is asking you to let go of the one thing, maybe even the one person that means the most to you. Because when we find ourselves in those situations, it reveals what is really in our hearts. It gives us an opportunity to see whether we love God above all others. It reveals whether God is really number one in our lives. Are we worshipping God or are we worshipping an idol that we've created ourselves? Not necessarily a physical idol that we bow down to, but an idol that can be maybe another person in our life, a relationship. That idol might be our career. That is more important to us than Jesus. That idol might be our looks. Not in my case, clearly, but that, that idol might be a dream or an ambition that we just hold. And we won't let that go for Jesus. What is it that you're worshipping in your life. This is the first mention of the word worship. And at heart and the concept of worship is the concept of giving to God. And Abraham went and demonstrated he was prepared to give. You see, following Jesus is about dying to self and worshipping him, not just through songs. Worship is about singing and, and praying and reading scriptures we've done this morning. That's part of what it means to worship. But worship is primarily about giving. And we worship God, or we can worship God, on a daily basis through our whole lifestyle. And at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is about dying to self on a daily basis and putting God first as an act of worship. Our whole life becomes an act of worship as we worship only him. Jesus said these words. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't really saying that we need to hate our families. What, what he's doing is using a method of speech called hyperbole. It's an exaggerated form of speech designed to make a point. What Jesus is saying is, look, in comparison to how you love me, it's, it's got to be as if you hate your family and as if you hate your own life. Jesus isn't saying that we have to hate our families, our own lives. He says lots about loving our families and, and providing for them and caring for them. But what God is saying is, in comparison to me, in comparison to how you feel about me, in comparison to what you do for me, it's got to be as if you hate yourself and hate others and hate your, uh, your family. See, it's doubtful if we can genuinely say that we are following Jesus unless we are making significant sacrifices in our own lives. The reality in the West, I believe, for most Christians in the West, is that Christianity is, is just a veneer. It's a very, very thin veneer. And, when you, and, 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 that, and that veneer might just be, well, I don't use bad language, and I don't get drunk, and, I, and, I, and I'm just a little bit nicer than my neighbor. But actually, when you peel that veneer back, underneath there's not a lot of difference between me and the guy next door. When actually, Jesus says here, unless you 
love me above all others. Unless you carry your cross daily, you cannot be my disciple. At the heart of what it means to follow Jesus is about complete self-surrender and complete self-sacrifice. That's what Jesus means about when he talks about carrying our cross. It's symbolic for saying it's this willingness to daily die to self. And of course, for many Christians in the world, it not only means dying to self metaphorically, it means physically dying and laying down our lives because of persecution. Now, this isn't how we get to heaven. We get to heaven simply by trusting in Jesus. But in response to what Jesus does when we trust in him, because he then he gives us forgiveness, he makes us right with God, and he gives us eternal life. In response to that, we're called to live lives that are devoted to Jesus, to live lives that where we're making significant sacrifices as we serve the Lord Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, but if that faith is genuine, it will result in us being willing to lay down our lives in response. And it means no longer putting my wants, my desires at the center of my life. It means dying to what I want. It means replacing that with what Jesus wants. And when we do things like that, it's then that we show that Jesus is number one in our lives, just as Abraham did. It's then that we demonstrate that our faith is real. It's not just words, it's real. Because faith without works or actions, as James says in the New Testament, is dead. It's not really faith at all. There has to be outworking of that faith. So here's a question for us to think about this morning. For you to just to take a few moments to think about. Maybe just, just a few moments of quiet just to reflect on this. Am I prepared to lay down that which is most precious to me for Jesus Am I prepared to lay down that which is most precious to me for Jesus? What is it that is most precious to you? And is God calling you to lay down that or be willing to lay that down for him? And are you prepared to do that? Are we prepared to do that, to take that step, to demonstrate the authenticness, the genuineness of our faith? Just bow our heads for a few moments. Just close our eyes and just for a few seconds, just reflect on that. It's a massive question. Huge question. Am I prepared to lay down that which is most precious to me? Maybe God has been prompting you and, and just nudging you quietly. And maybe over re- recent weeks and months, there's just something in your life that God is calling you to be willing to lay down. Some kind of idol in your life that's gotten in the way of you and Jesus. That means that Jesus is no, no, is no longer number one. Maybe God is just prompting you again and that still small voice just speaking into your heart. And I don't know what that is, but you do and the Holy Spirit does. And now's an opportunity for us just to respond and demonstrate our faith and resolve to serve Jesus and him only. Okay, let's, let's just go back briefly to this issue of God asking Abraham to kill Isaac. Why would God do that? I don't think we can look at this passage without asking that question. Well, firstly, we need to realize what God was not doing. Firstly, God was not tempting Abraham. Can I have that slide up, please? God was not tempting Abraham. God wasn't trying to entice Abraham to do wrong. What he was doing was testing him to see if he would do what is right. Okay, so God wasn't tempting Abraham to do wrong. Secondly, God wasn't instituting or condoning. Can I have that slide up, too? God wasn't instituting or condoning child sacrifice. The Bible makes it really clear that that God detests child sacrifice for all the obvious reasons. 
And it's important to remember that God prevented Abraham from actually killing Isaac. God didn't allow this to happen. He didn't desire the sacrifice as an act of worship for any other reason beyond testing Abraham. And thirdly, God wasn't telling Abraham to do wrong. It might seem to us that God was telling Abraham to do something that was wrong, but, but God wasn't. And here's why. God has the right to take human life and could therefore authorize Abraham to do so in a particular instance. God has the right to take human life and could therefore authorize Abraham to do so in this particular case. And that's because every human being, that includes you and me, it includes Isaac, it includes Abraham, every one of us has sinned and come short of God's perfect standard. So every one of us, in God's eyes, deserves to be dealt with under his wrath, his perfect righteous judgment. None of us deserve to be alive today. Isaac didn't deserve to be alive because he was a sinner. Abraham didn't deserve to be alive. I don't deserve to be alive right now. God is holy and he's righteous and God will be utterly right if he immediately just killed us all right now because we all, that's what we deserve. Before a holy, righteous God, we've all sinned. And God will be completely in his, in, in his right and his, in his holiness and his righteousness just to say enough. God could do that. He would be completely right to do that. The fact that God doesn't do that is because he's loving and because he's gracious and he wants to give us the opportunity to trust in him and give our lives to him. The Bible says God isn't willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to him. So why did God give Abraham this command? Well, I think the point was for Abraham to demonstrate that he trusted God completely and placed him above all else, even his own son. And though God already knew that Abraham had faith in him, it was necessary for Abraham to prove that and to prove that in his action. His faith was made complete by what he did. His actions were the, the living reality of his faith. And because of his actions, not only God, but Abraham and his family and future generations, including us here this morning, knew that Abraham trusted in God. And so Abraham has become this great example for us of what faith in action looks like. At an extreme end of the spectrum, Abraham has to do something that we are never going to be asked to do. And yet God saw Abraham's faith was genuine. That's a great example for us today to learn from. Now, as Abraham and Isaac walked up the hill, which later would be where the very temple in Jerusalem was built, and as they walked up there to build their altar, Isaac asked Abraham, where is the wood for the burnt offering? Where's the lamb, sorry, for the burnt offering? And Abraham, who's elsewhere in the Bible described as a prophet, he says these words, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. I think Abraham was partly referring to the ram that he, that he would later see caught in the bushes, but he was also, prophetically speaking, of a greater event that would take place in the future. And a greater event that would take place on that very hill where they were going. This is one of the greatest, clearest pictures in the Old Testament. It's not a prophecy as such, it's a picture that's acted out, it's a real event, but it pictures, it speaks of something that was going to happen in the New Testament. And the, and the picture spoke of the fact that the Lord Jesus in the future would come and would die on that very hill where Abraham offered Isaac. And the Lord Jesus would there take our place. He would become our substitute. He would die on the cross for your sin, for my sin. See, Abraham was asked to sacrifice the son he, he loved, this unique son that he loved. But the God who allowed Abraham to spare his son, his unique son, didn't spare his son, his unique and one and only son, the Lord Jesus. The God who allowed Abraham to spare his son didn't spare his only son. And the ram that took the place of Isaac, 
there on that altar is a simple yet wonderful picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do as he takes our place upon the cross. Jesus is often referred to as the Lamb of God and we often sing songs that talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And part of the reason for that is because Jesus, like that lamb that was caught in the bushes, took our place. He became a substitute sacrifice for us. That ram became a substitute for Isaac. And it speaks of and is a picture of the way that Jesus is a substitute for us. He was sacrificed on the cross in our place. And that male lamb in the bushes enabled Isaac to go free. And because Jesus died on the cross and took the punishment for all our wrongdoing, we too can go free. We can have our sins forgiven. We can be made right with God. We can have eternal life because of what Jesus did on the cross. And of course, the place where Jesus died was right there in Jerusalem, probably just a few hundred yards from the very spot where Abraham offered Isaac and where eventually that ram would be offered in Isaac's place. Verse 13 says this, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The Lord provided a substitute for Isaac. And the Lord, God has provided a substitute for you and for me. And he provided it on that very hill, on that very mountain, on that hill Moriah, which of course would be Jerusalem, where Jesus would die. The Lamb of God, a sacrifice substitute in our place. Jesus became our substitute in the very place that Abraham said the Lord will provide. What did the Lord provide? He provided a substitute for you and for me. He provided an opportunity for us to have a relationship with God, to have our sins dealt with once and for all. And as we take communion in a moment, we see a a, a wonderful picture of bread and of juice which speaks to us of the body and the blood of Jesus. As Jesus became that lamb of God, that substitute sacrifice for us on the very hill where hundreds of years earlier a ram was provided instead of Isaac. And this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if there's never been a moment when you've given your life to Jesus, then you too can have that wonderful provision. The Lord will provide. God's provided a way for you. But it's something that we have to take hold of. It doesn't matter if we're brought up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if our parents are Christians. That's something that we need to take hold of ourselves and make it real for ourselves in our lives. And if you haven't done that, whether you're 7 or 77 or anything in between, now is a great opportunity for you this morning to respond to the provision that God has made for you in Jesus, that substitute sacrifice. And if you haven't done that, then I urge you this morning to take that step and put your faith in the Lord Jesus and to trust in what the Lord has done for you. Let's just bow our heads for a few moments, just reflect on what we've said today. We, we need to be ready for God's testing of our faith. Our faith being tested isn't exceptional it's not out of the ordinary it will be the norm that is the new testament norm for followers of jesus that our faith is going to be tested and we need to be ready for that because otherwise if we have a faith that believes that we won't go through hard times we're going to be very disappointed because the bible is absolutely clear if we have faith our faith will be tested we need to be ready for god's testing of our faith it's part and parcel of being a follower of jesus but also it's good to ask ourselves isn't it, this morning is god calling us Is God calling you or me to lay down something that is precious to us? And I'll be ready to do that. And this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus for forgiveness, for that relationship with God, for for eternal life, then now is a great opportunity to take that step. So let's just bow our heads, close our eyes for a few moments of reflection. And then uh, in a few moments, the band are going to come and lead us 
um, in a time of worship as before we take communion together. Let's just bow our heads.